maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this Friday episode of Intelligence Squared. It's been quite a tumultuous start to 2021 to say the least with all the events going on in the news and we have a fantastic episode for you today on what's going on in America, Britain and the direction of the countries in 2021 and beyond. It features two of Britain's most popular and interesting political thinkers. Will Davis, who you might remember, we did a podcast on his previous book, Nervous States. Well, he's back with a new book. It's called This Is Not Normal, The Collapse of Liberal Britain. And Matthew Goodwin, the politics professor and author of National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. And you might remember him from a debate we did about two years ago on whether liberals are to blame for the rise of populism. It's a really fascinating conversation and it was chaired by Jenny Kleeman, another returning guest who you might remember we did a podcast with during the summer on her excellent book Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat. And if you do enjoy this podcast, you can find links for all our speakers' books in the podcast description. And a quick final note, the tech was a little bit glitchy towards the end of the event, which can happen when you're recording online. So we apologise if the audio quality is a little bit patchy in parts, but it's a great conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with me, Jenny Kleeman. I am delighted to introduce our guests tonight. We have Will Davis. He is a political economist and author of the book This Is Not Normal, The Collapse of Liberal Britain. He's also the author of Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World, a professor at Goldsmiths University. He writes regularly for the London Review of Books, The Guardian 
and the New York Times. We also have Matthew Goodwin. Uh, he is author of the best-selling books Revolt on the Right and National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. He is Professor of Politics and International Relations at Kent University, a Senior Visiting Fellow at Chatham House, and has studied populist movements for over a decade. Now, of course, things have changed a lot over the past 24 hours. We were all glued to our screens watching events unfold in America as a pro-Trump mob stormed Capitol Hill last night and sought to block lawmakers from certifying Joe Biden's electoral victory. So I wanted to begin by talking about that and asking you both what your thoughts were as you saw those images. Matt, perhaps we could begin with you. Well, thanks, Jenny. And uh, if I can extend my welcome to everybody. Well, my thoughts as I was watching the images yesterday were that to to put my cards on the table, you know, I've written about Trump and populism for a significant period of time. And when my co-author and I wrote National Populism, our argument was very much that Donald Trump was merely the latest incarnation of a very long tradition of populism in America that can go all the way back to the People's Party. But actually, yesterday it struck me that there is something somewhat unique with Trump in that I think he's clearly moved away from that distinctive populist tradition into what you might call a sort of crypto-fascist tradition in, in being quite willing to set the stage for mass violence. And one of the arguments about why populism is different from fascism is that populism is illiberal. It, it, it doesn't like liberalism, but often it basically agrees to live with liberalism. Fascism is completely different. It's revolutionary. And so populists are more reactionary. Fascists are revolutionary. They want to get rid of the whole system. Um, and I think what we saw yesterday was a president essentially giving the nod to his supporters that violence was um, socially acceptable uh, and that overthrowing institutions of the state was acceptable. And so my reaction was obviously, you know, one of horror, but also one of reflection in saying that I think on some respects, in some respects, I actually got Donald Trump wrong. I was sort of willing in 2016 to say, let's see how this presidency unfolds. Let's see how the institutions of the state hold up. Let's see how the norms of democracy hold up. And I was I was willing to let that experiment unfold. But I think yesterday it became apparent. Charlottesville was another moment, but yesterday was much more profound. But actually, we have a president who thankfully is leaving, but who is also clearly undermining democratic norms and willing to incite his supporters to do so. So I was quite shaken by yesterday. Pretty strong stuff there. How about you, Will? What was your reaction? Well, I mean, equally, I mean, obviously, it was it was shocking to see. But I mean, it's also worth remembering some of the precedents for this. So there was a plot that was busted last year to kidnap the governor of Wisconsin. There were the events in Charlottesville from a couple of years before where Donald Trump famously said that there were very good people on both sides of a conflict between white nationalists and uh, various protesters against the march that was going on in Charlottesville at the time. Trump himself has been saying for quite a long time that, you know, we'll have to see what happens with the election, but he's definitely going to win. And it was pretty, it's been pretty clear for a while that he was not 
someone who was sort of believed in, in, in kind of playing fair in any sense. I think the problem is that the Republican Party itself has not really believed in playing fair for a very long time in a ways that long predates uh, Trump. Actually, I mean, one thing which I've always struggled to get my head around with American politics is that for many people on the right, Democrats simply do not, cannot hold power legitimately. I mean, they didn't see Bill Clinton as a legitimate president, many of them. Uh, they didn't see Barack Obama as a legitimate president because of his race and because of the various conspiracy theories that people like Trump uh, circulated around where he was born. So there are figures, parts of the Republican Party uh, that have now kind of broken free of any kind of sense of respect for electoral norms that have been around for quite a long time. So I think that we have to be honest about that. And I think that the other thing which is worth mentioning, and I, and I know Matt is aware of this because I, I, think, I think you tweeted this today, uh, there's a new poll out showing that 45% of Republicans uh, agree or, or, or support what happened yesterday. So I think that it's, uh, it's good that Matt has said that he's got aspects of Donald Trump's leadership wrong, but I don't think any of us really thought that Trump was a, a stable or, or, or sort of responsible figure. I mean, he's never been someone you would expect to behave in a kind of an accountable fashion. I mean, he's a he's he's show business. That's what he is. He's always been box office. That's been his main appeal. Is you don't know what he's going to do next, and he's not remotely constrained by the public record or or what he said yesterday and that sort of thing. It's it's very eye catching. But I think the big question, I think, is whether, you know, to what extent did we get get uh, his supporters wrong as well? I think that's the, the, the question which I would, would, would put back to Matt is to what extent was some of the analysis of national populism also um, willing to overlook quite how radical uh, some of not just Trump supporters had had become or, or, or were right from the offset, but also I think the Republican Party has become something deeply strange and and frightening and and violent. Uh, and I think that what will happen to Trumpism now is that it will probably now, having sort of uh, briefly used the Republican Party as its kind of the host for this particular kind of virus, it may now just spin off from the Republican Party again and go back to a uh, to some uh, spaces of Facebook, YouTube, and and bits of Fox News, depending on how Murdoch chooses to play that and then I really don't you know and I think that this this has been present for a long time I think Obama managed to keep it at bay to some extent uh, but this has been a, a there's been a, a dangerous and hateful dimension of the American right uh, that is not the full story as to what happened in 2016 but I think we need to we need to talk about that and not just about this kind of rather sort of terrifying and exceptional figure uh, what would you say to that Matt it sounds like will will was not surprised you, you were shocked, you said. Were you surprised? No, I wasn't surprised. I was shocked at Trump's statement, which I thought was deeply irresponsible. And even at that point, I suppose, the degree to which he essentially sanctioned violence and aligned himself with the protesters, I thought was, was deeply disturbing. But the one, the one thing that, that I would push back on that Will mentioned is clearly what we're seeing is an entire political system that has become deeply dysfunctional. And so whereas Will will say, actually, this is essentially about the right, my view is that actually the polarisation that we're seeing running through the American system is is cumulative in nature. It's the right bouncing against the left, against the right, against the left. And we've seen that through the actions in in Portland. We've seen it through the way in which the Democrats at certain points over the last two years have given credence to conspiracy theories that, that didn't have any real legitimacy within the American system. And we've seen it as well now on the right with Trump giving the nod to protesters. So 
I, I always remember an earlier Intelligence Squared debate, probably about two years ago, um, Jonathan Haidt, the social psychologist, musing out loud whether the United States of America would actually make it to 2050 as a coherent, unified country. And as I, as I was watching the events yesterday, that came back into my mind because as I looked at the opinion polls last night and was sort of sharing them and looking at the complete degree of polarization that 85% of Democrats blame the actions yesterday on Trump and 85% of Republicans blame the outcome on, on the Democrats. I don't know how you come back from that. I don't think in any advanced Western democracy we've ever seen an answer to the question of how you curb that polarization. And I'm sure we can talk about social media, we can talk about the Great Recession, we can talk about all of this stuff. But I don't think any of us actually have the answer to how you can really curb that degree of animosity between two political tribes that are separated not by economic policy, but by their values. And values don't really change. And that's what makes me deeply sceptical about the US going forward. Will, is this is this about the US alone, though? Uh, you know, we're quite polarised in this country as well. Is Do you see a sense that we are going in a similar direction? Well, I, I mean, there's a very different history with the US that, that can't just simply be sort of lifted up and sort of uh, applied elsewhere, particularly, I mean, the US was effectively an apartheid regime within the lifetime of, of, of many voters, at least in certain parts of the United States. This is, this is not a history that, that Britain shares in the same way. And I think that that colours so much of American history and American politics in ways that, you know, the question is how America can actually kind of ever overcome some of those uh, divisions and some of the sort of scars that they leave. I think that what you do also see in Britain and what I was immediately struck by watching what happened last night is I don't think that Brexiteers were ever about to kind of breach the Houses of Parliament and start to sort of storm around. But I do think that what we're seeing, uh, and, and my understanding of populism, I'm not someone who's who's written specifically about populism in the way that, that Matt has, but what I think you see happening more on the right than on the left, I, w- I don't want to both sides this, and I, I think today is a bad time to, to, to play the both sides card, actually, um, is that there are sections on the right, and this includes, it's not exclusively nationalists, and it's not exclusively driven by matters of, 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 of race or anything like that. But I think there are sections on the right that have come to view parliamentary democracy. And I think this is the case in, in Britain. I think Brexit was both a symptom of it, but it also was a great accelerator of it, uh, that see parliamentary democracy as illegitimate. And there are various reasons why I think that this is the case. I'm not saying these people don't exist on the left, but I don't think they have the same sort of uh, coordination, the same organisation and the same scale as they do on the right. Now, there are various reasons why they exist on the right. I think that and we can talk, uh, go back over time about different forms of political alienation and, 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 and withdrawal from participation in democracy over decades. I think the MPs' expenses scandal of 2011 was uh, was, it was a huge moment. It, 2011, 2009, actually, sorry. It was right after the financial crisis. Huge moment in, in confirming a view of politics that actually that most people were simply trying to line their own pockets and this sort of thing. But then you've also got to point the finger at someone like David Cameron, who 
held three referenda in his time as Prime Minister, one of which he damn nearly lost and the other which he did lose. The other one on PR, he he, he won, but which basically uh, played to a vision of direct democracy. And the problem with direct democracy is that we don't really have the constitutional mechanisms in place in this country for handling some of the effects of direct democracy, particularly when referenda are around yes or no answers or, or, or remain leave answers. So what direct democracy does is it does immediate violence to the institutions of liberal democracy that have evolved in this country over 350 years and it takes a hammer to some of those institutions. Now I'm not saying those institutions were in great health in, in 2015 or even in, in even in 1995 but I do think that when you see people storming into a, a legislative building like that um, and you look at some of the kind of sentiments which I think you know we can talk about whether they'll die down or where they might go but when you think back to some of the kind of really high pressure moments of the Brexit debate, you know, the time when Boris Johnson was talking about the surrender bill in Parliament with Labour MPs pleading with him on the other side of the House to stop using that kind of language for fear of what it meant for, for them, for their lives, actually, because they were talking about Joe Cox. And he immediately turned around and said, I think the best way to honour Joe Cox's memory is to get Brexit done. You know, that is the kind of politics that is uh, that is fanning the flames of a of a broader uh, popular and, and often nationalist sentiment that comes to view those in London and those in Parliament and those within the institutions of government and, and throws together professional media, incidentally, uh, together with the court, because after all, they were held up as enemies of the people by the Daily Mail. You are looking at some of the same kind of dimensions. And I think we have to be very, we have to really kind of be quite honest about what's, what's fueling some of that. Let's, let's move, let's focus on Britain and Brexit now. And now that we have got Brexit done, I wonder whether or not you think the kind of culture war that came with Brexit is also done for? Is it, is it now a fundamental part of our politics? Are we seeing it, for example, in attitudes to lockdown? Are we seeing uh, other political questions falling along those lines? Matt? Yeah, I think what we saw through Brexit, and I, I, I won't kind of rehash you know, how we got here, but in terms of why we're here and where we're going, what we're seeing in Britain, as as in other advanced Western democracies, is the emergence of a new fault line underneath our democracy that's much more about culture and our values than it is about the traditional left-right divide over the economy. So the reason why we're all talking about age and education all of a sudden isn't because age and education are particularly important in one sense. It's because they are proxies for our deeper values. They are uh, very big influences on our on our values, and and that's why I think um, much of the commentary about where we are today misses, I think, the way in which the foundations of British politics are changing. Uh, a bit like tectonic plates under the surface of the Earth, we are gradually moving away from that left right divide to a divide that I would call between um, I would call as separating tra- traditionalists who who aspire to a more group-orientated vision of, of British society and modernists who are much more at ease and comfortable with the way in which Britain is changing. And they're not necessarily open versus closed. There's a lot of fluidity within them. But the basic value divide that we saw being expressed through Leave and Remain, we can also see being expressed through how we think about Black Lives Matter, through um, pulling down statues, to some extent, though not really through how we think about Donald Trump. The vast majority of British people don't like Donald Trump. And so I, I, my sort of pessimistic take on where we are is actually that however much, and I'll come back to this later on, I think however much I think we have to embrace Brexit because like it or loathe it, we're here and we're all going to have to make it work. 
I actually think the culture wars that have found their expression through Brexit are probably going to be a permanent feature of our politics going forward because culture, identity, belonging, these are all of the big questions now that actually cannot be simply reduced down to questions of economic redistribution, jobs, wages, the Great Recession. They actually, to some extent, stand independent of those old drivers. And we've seen a cross-class coalition of voters come together, affluent conservatives, less affluent, but nonetheless working blue-collar voters, lots of folks who feel that for various reasons the nation-state has been uh, eroded and undermined, and they've rallied behind first Brexit and, that, and now Boris Johnson and basically pushed our system into a realignment. And the one area where I might agree is to say that where I think we're probably going to end up if we're not careful 10 years from now, 20 years from now, is a deeply polarised political system that is anchored around those value divides. We might not be as bad as America, but we're certainly on the same road as America. We're probably just 20, 30 miles behind America, but we're definitely heading in the, in the same direction. Uh, Will, I wonder what your take on all of this is. Is this just, was Brexit just the, the, the first battle in a very long culture war? Well, I mean, some of this is going to, some things are going to change. I mean, slowly, I mean, this is, Matt mentioned that this is about age as much as anything else. Well, I mean, there is a kind of cluster of, uh, I'm not saying that the entire Leave vote was, this explains the entire Leave vote, but there is a cluster of quite uh, asset rich, I suppose, baby boomer generation who have not obviously the kind of metropolitan liberal university educated, but there is, I mean, we know that um, the divides that Matt's referring to fall along, particularly around university educated versus non-university educated. Now, back in the 1960s, the number of people who went to who were university educated was, I don't know, Matt probably has the, the figures, but more like sort of 10%, whereas right now it's gradually creeping up towards 50% because of the uh, Blair ambition to get that many people going to university. So you have got a kind of gradual shift of there will be more and more people who are making up the, the, the population who have been to university, who hold some of the more kind of liberal values that, 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 that Matt's referring to, but which at the moment, many of whom are actually completely locked out of the economic gains as such as if there aren't really many economic gains at the moment, but of things like the housing market and so on. Now, that's going to have huge effects on politics. And that doesn't necessarily uh, kind of fall strictly into kind of culture war sort of divides, because there are actually, I think, clear material interests. And this partly explains something like Corbynism around between uh, younger voters who simply don't really have anything to gain from our current economic model. And there are also actually, there has been some studies showing that uh, older voters are no more likely to vote Conservative than Labour if they are uh, in the rental market. And actually, so this, your relationship to property and to assets also still does have quite a profound effect on political values in various ways. So it's not to, I'm not, not to say that these questions of values and these questions of culture are relevant, but they certainly kind of intersect with uh, other dimensions of class uh, dynamics that actually now have become much more around one's relationship, one, one's tenure in relation to one's property, one's relationship to assets, one's ability to inherit assets and the ability to benefit from an economy that now really, it's really since the, the early 90s, has been governed in a way that is much more around the interests of uh, asset ownership, of return on investment, than around wage uh, increases. And I think that is a 
a kind of major transformation in the way that capitalism works, which is still having all sorts of unexpected effects. I mean, of course, some of these sorts of, you know, divisions get get exacerbated, but it doesn't get helped by the fact that we have a media, which is also dwindling, incidentally. I mean, these newspapers are all fear for their for their for their lives in the future because their 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 circulation is falling year on year as their readers gradually die. But we've got a media that picks up sort of tiny little tweets and tiny little statements by various, you know, like the conductor of the the proms orchestra had, was was said to be a supporter of Black Lives Matter. I mean, the Daily Telegraph and the Times managed to extract about three weeks of controversy from some rumor about what the Polish conductor of the of the proms thought about Black Lives Matter. She hadn't even said anything on the record. She ended up having to kind of come out and formally sort of distance us. I mean, it, you know, if you've got an industry that is that well capitalized and that determined to keep culture war alive, such that tiny little things like that can achieve that level of profile, of course you're going to have some of these divisions. But I mean, briefly, we saw a picture, I think last March, and I mean, maybe it's kind of could flicker back into life again. When the pandemic hit, the culture war was put on hold for a while. I think it got brought back into life, partly to distract from the handling of the pandemic. I want to move on to talk. Oh, do you want to come back on that, Matt? Well, I was going to just briefly say that um, not everything that we're debating is imaginary and not everything that we're debating is a conspiratorial plot to distract from how the government is handling the pandemic. There are real world changes happening to things like education policy in the UK, to uh, how we manage universities, to whether we should decolonize our reading lists for university students, to how we deal with freedom of speech and nonconformists within the public square. These things are not imaginary. These things are real. And the way in which our values are rubbing up against one another, I think, is is a sign partly of that, but also the way in which these underlying disputes are, are probably not going to go anywhere anytime soon. We know where Britain is going to be in 2030, 2040. It's going to be much, much more ethnically, religiously, culturally diverse. There will probably be a significant, a larger number of university graduates. The middle class will probably have expanded a little bit, maybe. And we know that these conflicts over culture and values will probably intensify as certain groups realize they are part of a declining share of the population and other groups realize that they are part of a rising uh, share of the population. And that is the story of America. I mean, that is essentially what we're seeing playing out. Michael Lind wrote a brilliant essay on the protests yesterday, which um, came out this morning. And, you know, he makes the point that if you basically look at the groups that have rallied around Trump conspiracy, paranoia, madness, a lot of those groups have also simultaneously realized that they are rapidly entering minority status within the United States of America. And I don't personally think that we fully thought through the psychological effects of some of that and how that's going to impact upon different groups in our society and and the role that that's going to play in politics. And I'm completely sympathetic to Will's points about the economy and how certain groups are being left behind. But away from that, we are also going to be dealing with lots of people who are going to go from majority to minority status and we'll find that you know within our lifetime and we'll find that profoundly unsettling but i mean the question is whether you know there's a scapegoating that goes on particularly around universities thanks to the work of people like douglas murray and others that basically claim that these tiny little niche fears of of, of theory you know, intersectionality and post-structuralism and so on have kind of taken over the world and i mean you know like 
Matt, you you write about kind of the the values and the the, the attitudes of, of 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 red wall voters. These sort of you know traditionally Labour leaning Leave voters who felt abandoned by a metropolitan liberal class of Labour politicians and and wonks and 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 elites and so on. And 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 clearly there's a there's a real sociological story going on there, and it's been discussed by various people. Thomas Piketty and others have have mapped how certain sections of a traditional left leaning uh, population have 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 gradually either been abandoned by or have abandoned the traditional left left wing parties uh, and there's that's a that's a long running story that dates back decades but this idea which gets kind of fed to some of those you know in that, in that direction that there is some sort of you know this kind of idea of a kind of woke conspiracy and i think you know you've contributed to some of this i mean you know you 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 would went to the select committee in the house of commons and and said if we're going to ask white kids to start apologizing for their race and there was no evidence that anyone was asking them to do this you know that they that this idea that the, 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 the critical race theory has been kind of lifted from America and brought over to Britain and is now kind of flooding Britain's schools. If you're a if you're a, a, a 65 year old traditionally Labour voting lever from you know an, an ex industrial or ex mining community and you hear some you know a professor from Kent talking about the fact that we're asking white kids to apologise for their race in schools, you might believe it. And there's no actual evidence that it was going on. So this is the this is the question. This is the question of whether whether or not these the, some of these I, I'm not saying that there is not I'm not saying that the cultural divides are imaginary I'm saying that some of the the the, the stories that are being used to fan the flames of these uh the, these stories are, are some of them are literally imaginary well um I think I just yeah I, I just to provide context for people who aren't familiar with that particular story the education committee in Britain has just started a, a well for a few months now has been undertaking uh, a new inquiry into left behind white working class children within the education system for the simple reason being that if you look at every serious metric that we have, the groups that are falling behind at primary school and secondary school and then the groups that are not making it into university are white working class children. The only groups that come close to their low rates of performance are children from Gypsy Roma traveller communities and, to some extent, Black Caribbean communities. But actually, there's a lot of evidence over the last three years to suggest that even those groups have eclipsed white working-class children on free school meals. I was actually asked within an education committee meeting by a Labour member of Parliament as to whether the differences in educational attainment have something to do with white privilege. So I wasn't making that point up will i was responding to a question from a labor mp about whether white privilege had anything to do with why those children are falling through the cracks and i would also add that we now have evidence from a number of reports and freedom of information requests that have gone out and have been reported that actually these things are not imaginary there is a narrative within our society the fact that we're even talking about this point reflects the, the fact that we have a narrative within our society that, that suggests that um, white privilege is an empirically reliable, sound, robust concept in British society. And also that our society is, without question, structurally racist. And I'm afraid to say the empirical evidence on that is not there to support that proposition. I'm, I'm going to... 
Before we go and take questions, the title of this this debate uh, was uh, Brexit, Biden and the future of Britain. So I have to ask you about Biden. With with Biden's victory, what does his election mean for the Johnson government here in the UK? I'm going to put that to Will. Oh, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that, to be honest, I'm, I'm not someone who, who, who goes in for these sort of what's going on on that side of the pond immediately has, means, means this on this side of the pond. I mean, there's a kind of cottage industry that, that people like Jonathan Friedland and so on kind of participate in of sort of saying, oh, well, you know, this is Obama's doing well. That means that, you know, Gordon Brown's going to do well, you know, that sort of thing. It's I mean, of course, it used to be a bit of there was a sort of love in between the Blairites and the Clintonites in the 90s. But I mean, that was partly because there wasn't enough more important going on in the world at the time. I think that clearly kind of this, the mood might have changed. I don't know. I mean, frankly, I, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, I can sort of believe what I read in the papers, but the idea that this, um, you know, that the, the 10 Downing Street, I know the papers make a huge thing about, you know, who was going to get the first phone call with Obama and, you know, does does Johnson, has he tied himself too closely to Trump? I've always assumed as a as a as a sociologist who's more interested in kind of things like bureaucracy and the kind of institutions of government than I am in, in, in leaders, really. I've always assumed that the way in which uh, sort of politics really get done is, is much more via sort of more anonymous kind of instruments of power and, and, and modes of regulation and so on. I've, the idea that really it matters that that much how Johnson and Trump kind of get on. I, I've never really kind of seen that, but of course, it, 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 this idea that there that there will be a reckoning for liars, I think you know, I think is is cause for optimism. And I mean, Boris Johnson is one of our most famous liars. I mean, he he lies in a very different way from Trump because Trump routinely lies about matters of public record. That is, you know, things which are facts, things which have happened in the past. Uh, Johnson is a cleverer liar because he lies about things that are going to happen in the future and so you can't falsify them but it's always like I'm going to build a bridge I'm going to you know vaccinate this many people the next week I'm going to get everything back to normal by Christmas so he's he's very good at sort of spinning yarns about the future rather than about matters which are on the public record but I, so I think that I mean perhaps it, it makes him him nervous that to, to, to witness I suppose partly what what I mean the most significant thing of, of the 2020 US election to me was how the democratic party and the left managed to, to unite in ways that obviously the, the left in the U, in the British 2019 election was just kind of all over the place. I mean, you know, that was it was just sort of shattered by the Remain Leave divide. And I think it's interesting to think whether or not if Johnson was to become loathed enough, which I, I don't see happening anytime soon, I know he's still polling reasonably well, but if he was to become loathed enough, whether that could become the basis of a really effective coalition against him in the way that Biden managed to put together in places like Georgia and Arizona. Matt, what do you think Biden means for Britain? I think he probably means that we might be overlooked on certain questions. I think he will instinctively, you know, he's a liberal, multilateral leader. I think he will look to the European Union on a number of big questions. I, I think, you know, he's on record and so are his advisors in saying that they view Brexit as, quote unquote, a historic mistake. And I think that given where the UK is, there is an uncertainty over what global Britain means. I think the White House may be leaning instinctively more toward the EU. Now, that won't be smooth sailing, as we discovered with the European Union signing the new deal with China, which has greatly irritated the Biden camp, that on some of these issues philosophically, actually the UK and the US are still closer um, in spirit than the United States might be with the European Union. There is also the fact that over the next 10 years, and for a variety of reasons that perhaps we can come back to in the questions, 
the European Union and the Eurozone will not, at least in my view, be anywhere near as dynamic and as successful as uh, as some suggest. And I think that will also factor into uh, the calculations within the United States. But one other last point before we turn to questions, perhaps, is uh, I think there's also been a misreading about who Biden is. I think Biden economically, programmatically, in some senses, on the economic axis, isn't that different from Trump. I mean, he is pretty protectionist. He's got the Made in America tax incentive for companies to end offshoring. He's got penalties for companies that leave the US and sell back in. He's retained Trump's tariffs on China. He's only said he's going to review them. He hasn't said he's going to get rid of them. And so I think on all of those issues, we're likely to see an acceleration of the US-China dispute. I don't think that's going to heal anytime soon. I think the next five years will all be about US-China and, and, and Biden trying to stop the inevitable, which is China becoming the dominant superpower. And, uh, and that, will be, that will be incredibly interesting to watch. I don't think he'll be able to get the big reforms through that he wants, given the very, very slender majority that he has. He'll get more, certainly he'll get more through than he, than he would have got through a week ago, but I don't think he's going to get the massive big tech regulation and the tax reforms and all of the rest of it that, that he put the electorate at the election. But I agree with Will, actually. I don't think for Labour there are any <laughs> interesting lessons and overlaps. So largely because I don't think the Labour Party even today really still knows where it is, actually, in terms of its ideology, <coughs> its programme and strategy. I think it's done well at attacking Johnson on coronavirus. But if you ask me what does Keir Starmer stand for, I would say I don't know. Let's go to questions. We've got a question here. Is last night's insurrection in DC the beginning of the end of US populism? Who wants to go on that first? Will. The expert should. Yes. Well, I thought I, I thought the expert should, but but he was sitting back in his chair. Uh, well, obviously, it depends what you mean by 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 populism. I mean, it, it's clearly not. It's clearly it's clearly the beginning of a of a of a of, of, of potentially a very frightening form of street politics on the right. It clearly can be coordinated very effectively online. I mean, I don't know if anyone saw there was there were photos which surfaced of people wearing T-shirts saying I can't remember what the slogan was, but it was something like um, you know a revolt with the date saying saying sixth of January. January 2021. They, this was, these had been printed in advance. So via various, uh, you know, Facebook and YouTube um, networks and, 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 and whatever else, it is possible now for if these sorts of movements to, to operate. And, you know, America is a country whose history is just fraught with, with violence, and particularly with gun violence. So I, I, th- I think that it's extremely worrying as a, as a symptom, not necessarily of, of how the Republican Party is going to go. I don't know what's going to happen to the Republican Party. I, it's really very difficult to say. But I think in terms of sort of the, these people who experienced the frisson of the Trump rallies and experienced the, 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 the outrage where they genuinely believe that, the, 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 that um, democracy has been subverted. I mean, this is the frightening thing. If you think about, you know, QAnon conspiracy plus a sense that the election was stolen plus the idea that the mainstream media is all a kind of, you know, controlled by the Clintons and all this sort of thing. Put all of that together, if they abandon the Republican Party and the, or mutually go their separate ways, they're certainly not going to, that's not going to dwindle by any means. I mean, this comes back a little bit to the, to the Jonathan Haidt question that Matt raised about what happens to America by 2050, because these people are, are, are becoming more mobilised, not less. The question is, what you know, mobilised towards what? That's the frightening question. And I think that, I mean, you know, it could be that America America is, is, is looking at, uh, at a 
new phase of, of far-right uh, activism and terrorism of the sort that requires sort of constant surveillance and constant monitoring and, you know, and hopefully effective security measures to, to, to keep it under control. But I, I don't see it going, getting any, any smaller. That's not populism. That's something else. But mm. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I, I think there are really only three options, actually. In, it, it, I think the first is you, you essentially have the status quo, which is somehow... I think it's the least likely option, but Trump manages to remain a force within the Republican Party. I just don't think that will happen. I think they will close ranks around the the sort of unacceptability of Trump. I, I think, secondly, he just simply goes rogue and starts an independent movement that tries to campaign from the outside, that tries to channel the frustration into his business empire. And I think, thirdly, Potentially, we see some kind of realignment of the U.S. party system that actually the Republicans decide that they're going to close Trump out. And somehow that movement, whether it's through Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz or, you know, that sort of orbit that has clearly been positioning to inherit the Trump mantle, um, tries to drag the right away. And we've seen things similar to that. Canada is an example, the Reform Party. Uh, essentially replacing the progressive uh, conservative party in the early 1990s. We've, of course, had our own realignments in the British party system. I'm not saying that I think it will happen, but when I look at the opinion poll numbers yesterday and today, we are talking about 10% of the country that sort of views this as an acceptable behaviour. We're talking about 30, 40, 45% of the Republican base that somehow views this as an acceptable action. I, I do actually agree with that we see an escalation of low-level violence in America. I think we can already see that, and I think we can already sense that. And the deeper problem facing the U.S. is that there are no unifying narratives for America anymore, that essentially the big stories of you know what America is have been hollowed out, have been fragmented. And Will's point earlier on that, you know, this is not the time for pointing to both sides. Well, no, I, personally, I think we're in the heat of the moment. It's very easy to say, you know, we've got, an, we've got a theory that explains everything. But as we stand back weeks and months from now, I think the sober objective heads that emerge will say, actually, this is a broader systemic problem facing the United States. And it is not just simply a Trump problem. It is a systemic problem. And at the heart of that, I would suggest, is not just economic in it. It's the fact that America has no unifying narrative anymore. The left, I think, has a very fragmented narrative, which is group-based for, you know, obvious reasons, given the legacy of slavery and so on, is focused very much on minorities. And the identity politics, too, is mobilizing a more racially aware white base within the Republican Party that has been encouraged to think about its ethnicity uh, and race largely by those fragmented we have, because because why would white Americans think of themselves as white Americans when every other group is being encouraged to think of itself as an ethnic racial group? So we have a real big problem here in, in the narratives that we have, ironically, are taking us all the way back to narratives of race and ethnicity that the civil rights struggle was all about eradicating. So I think those underlying problems are going to have to be dealt with before we can even begin to think about moving towards some sense of unity. Another question here. What do you think is the real driver behind those pushing Brexit? My sense is that sovereignty is just cover and is not the real driver. Will, what are your thoughts on that? 
I mean, sovereignty is a, a great concept because it's metaphysical, so you can't ever kind of touch it and you can't ever prove it. I mean, I thought it was hilarious when the European Research Group, which is the sort of, you know, backbench Tory, very pro-Brexit group with people like Steve Baker and Bill Cash and so on, they sort of got their star chamber of lawyers to assess Johnson's 1,500-page deal and they sort of came out of it and they said, yes, this is compatible with sovereignty. Well, sovereignty, I mean, no one's ever seen sovereignty. I mean, so where, you know, there's the mace in Parliament or it's the Queen. Or, I mean, sovereignty is, a, is, a, is, is, is metaphysical. And of course, people need metaphysical things to believe in. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not, I'm not um, uh, going to sort of kind of belittle people for, for believing in, for, for wanting sovereignty. I, I think that people want sovereignty, but maybe what they want a lot of, and I mean, this is to, to do a little bit of, sort of armchair psychology, probably a lot of people wanted sovereignty, maybe in a more local sense. I mean, there were people interviewed about why they voted for Brexit. I'm not saying this was kind of typical before I get picked up on, on that. You know, said, well, it's because my swimming pool got closed down by the council. So I'm, you know, I've had enough of it. I'm voting Brexit. You know, that's, that's a loss of sovereignty, but it's nothing to do with Brussels. Or people saying, you know, I want to be able to, you know, the, uh, the sort of political correctness is a, is a threat to, to the sovereignty to be able to sort of, you know, buy, buy my daughter kind of girls' toys or something like this. So there's a kind of feeling of a loss of sovereignty that is often got very little to do with the kind of legal relationship between London and Brussels. And that's really the kind of tragedy of, you know, the fact that Kent is being turned into a lorry park, the fact that Britain's suffering a kind of long-term loss of GDP of 4% uh, a year due to Brexit, according to the OBR. The fact that, you know, the amount of time and hassle we've spent focusing on this thing over the last four and a half years that we could have been focusing on, you know, I don't know, expanding our NHS capacity or something else. So there is a genuine sort of, I think, a, a tragedy. But I, I think that the, 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 the sense that sovereignty has been lost is, is real and needs to be understood and sympathised with in, in many ways. But also, I think sometimes people maybe need to be, it could be suggested to people that the sovereignty they've lost isn't actually this one and then the question is who is paying for this to be look to look like the uh, the, the the real issue and then you've got to start talking about Aaron Banks and Paul Marshall and you know these sorts of people who, who have ploughed millions of pounds into along with the help of people like Paul Dacre and the Daily Mail and the Daily Express but have ploughed sort of a huge amount of money and effort into this being the, the, the problem of sovereignty that needs to be addressed, i.e. something to do with London and Brussels. And then you've got to start asking about who else might gain from that. Matt, what's your take on all of this? What is the real driver of Brexit if, it, if it's not sovereignty? I mean, I, I think a lot of it is to do with sovereignty. I disagree with almost everything Will said, uh, <laughs> which, which is good. Look, I think all of the evidence on the Brexit vote is is entirely clear. We've had 20 plus studies over the last four years. They suggest that there are two key motives. One is for whether you disagree with them or disagree with them, but the evidence all says the same, that people wanted decisions that affect the United Kingdom to be taken in the United Kingdom. And they also wanted greater control over freedom of movement and overall migration into the country. And those two motives come out in the British election study, in the uh, Lord Ashcroft work, YouGov, my stuff, everyone, a lot of other people's. And I think as a consequence, we then say, well, maybe all of that stuff isn't real. Like maybe it's just imaginary or maybe people were duped into false consciousness by Aaron Banks and Paul Dacre, which is a very narrative maybe they just knew what they were voting for you know which is a bit of a, a shocking suggestion but maybe they just felt that over the last forty, gradually this has been hollowed out that power had been sent up to distant and insufficiently accountable institutions in the european union which they are insufficiently democratic and they are insufficiently 
accountable. Meanwhile, much of the other aspects of the state through regulatory agencies, through privatization and so on, have been gradually stripped out. And so the very real sense that they had no control was actually a legitimate sense because they didn't really have much control. Meanwhile, mm. our domestic politicians were telling them that they could control the things that actually they couldn't control. So meanwhile, I think that left a lot of people saying, well, I don't really feel as though this is a great deal for me. And I don't feel like this is a great deal for my family. And whatever you think about, you know, whether you're a Remainer or a Lever, look, the fact is that where we are right now, we have to embrace where we are. There's no going back. We have to embrace where we are. And we can actually, with significant policy autonomy, what we have now, I actually feel it may be the optimist in the room when it comes to Brexit. I wasn't a Brexiteer. I accepted Brexit. I was one of 10% of academics after the referendum. 90% opposed Brexit or wanted to overturn it. 10% either supported it from the beginning or they then accepted it. But I am somebody who thinks, let's make the most of it, right? So what, what could that mean? Um, we could maximize the autonomy that we have versus the European Union. We can do a significant amount around quantitative easing, fiscal stimulus, free ports. We can do a load of stuff that we couldn't do while we were in the European Union. And I don't think it will happen, but what we could do, and where maybe Will and I would agree, is let's say we have a different political leadership 10 years from now. We could do much more in the way of a redistributive economic policy around tax, things like that, that we haven't had until now. And for the first time in a long time, if you live in Bolsover, Bishop Auckland, Doncaster, people are talking about you. And nobody's kind of answered this question to me. Why weren't we talking about these areas in these communities before? Because now they've got 100 billion of capital spending. They've got a new immigration points-based system. They've got a four billion pound leveling up fund. They've got an infrastructure bank going into the north. They've got 32,000 civil servants moving out of London to northern regions by 2030. And they've also got nine billion pounds back a year, which was our net contribution to the European Union, above and beyond what we got from the European Union in return. So the idea that there are no benefits from Brexit, I mean, I just don't agree with that. And if you are from those areas, and basically for the last 30 years, nobody has really cared about you or your community, you're now at the centre of the national conversation. And once COVID disappears, and let's all hope it does, the only conversation we'll be having in the UK will be levelling up. I actually think that's a really good thing for, for a country and for us to conversation, because until now, we've just sort of ignored it. Another question here. Johnson has not handled the pandemic well, but the Conservatives seem to be polling incredibly well. Why? Maybe we'll, we'll let Matt answer this one first. Well, I think it comes down to the realignment that I've that I referred to earlier. If even if you look at the polls today, the Conservatives are leading among the working class. Uh, the Conservative Party at the election last year was more popular among low income voters and high income voters, and the Labour Party was more popular among high income voters and low income voters. So what we've seen are the two parties invert their base of support, which is remarkable. We haven't seen that before in British politics. We haven't seen class in general be reduced to having almost no serious effect uh, on our statistical models, which is what we've seen now because values have kicked in. So Johnson is holding on to an average last month of 38%, which is his low point. Typically, he's above 40s. Uh, and that, that was David Cameron's high point. David Cameron was doing good if he got 38%. So the power of Johnson's electorate is coming from this broader realignment. Now, what does the Labour Party and the left need to do to beat that? Well, there, there is very simply one thing they need to do. Uh, they need to win back England. 
The Labour Party has not won the popular vote in England since 2001. There is no path back to power for the Labour Party that does not run through the Midlands and the North. And all of those voters in those areas are cross-pressured voters. They lean to the left on the economy and they lean to the right on Brexit and on immigration. So if you're Keir Starmer or you're advising the Labour Party, you've got to have something to say to those voters that isn't just about... Um, you know, how you don't like Brexit or how you think Boris Johnson is Donald Trump and all of this kind of stuff, because those voters aren't really that interested in that. Of course, they could do a coalition with the SNP, but we all know what the price of that is going to be, which will be probably the, the breakup of the United Kingdom. So England is actually the, the big puzzle now that the Labour Party has to solve. Well, well, I mean, I think so. The, there were kind of two key dates in the uh, in the last sort of ten years of, of British electoral politics. One is twenty third of June, twenty sixteen, which was the day of the referendum, and the other is the thirty first of March, twenty nineteen, which is when Theresa May had to go for a second time for an extension of the, the transition period, uh, and that was when basically the, ele- the the polls probably people remember they went completely crazy for a few months, uh, and suddenly you had kind of four parties all on roundabout sort of twenty five percent roughly. I mean, more, more or less, you know, the Brexit Party, the Lib Dems, the Labour Party and the Tory Party. And what happened was that through sheer ruthlessness and a sheer willingness to basically do whatever it took to become prime minister, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings decided they would basically put the Leave vote back together again in whatever way they had to do that, by, uh, thereby destroying the Brexit Party effectively. And they managed to do that over the course from 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 June 2019 through to December 2019. They managed to do that and they did it in the most ruthless way possible. They purged many of their uh, most cherished uh, kind of old timers from the backbenchers like Winston Churchill's grandson and Ken Clark and that sort of thing. They did whatever it took. They tried to have a direct confrontation um, with the courts over over the proroguing of parliament. So they basically absorbed aspects of Faragism that allowed them to put the Leave vote back together again. And it was extremely effective. And I think that what if you remember how Johnson won the 2019 election, get Brexit done, it was basically that these parliamentarians have not allowed you people to have what you voted for in June 2016 and it was that was correct in 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 certain complicated ways uh, and effectively it turned it seized the leave vote and it absorbed the leave vote into the conservative party and it made the conservative party a version of the brexit party and ultimately a form of identity politics and in that sense i, I think the thing about political identity and, and labor has not managed to do any of this i mean as you know as as, as matt would, would would be able to explain in, in far greater detail than me i mean the, you know the labor vote is still kind of split in all sorts of different ways to do with uh, identity and matters of, of leave and remain but I think that once you get to that 40%, when it's based around questions of not what do I want, but who am I, the question of who am I is a far more difficult one to budge than the question of what do I want or what are my interests. The question of what do I want and what are my interests is a question that kind of Blairism spoke to extremely effectively, a kind of, you know, supermarket approach to to elections, which is, well, you know, we'll give you a bit of this, we'll give you a bit of that, and eventually you'll vote for us kind of thing, which is why you need lots of focus groups to work out what people think they want and that sort of thing. Uh, But the question of who am I is a much deeper one and frankly you can destroy the economy and you can also lead you can also um, run uh, an often chaotic and frankly corrupt approach to the handling of this dreadful pandemic which of course I mean I don't think anyone would have done a particularly great job under these sorts of circumstances but uh, and people remain the same person people continue to answer the question who am I in the same way and having 
gone through that sort of, I suppose, sort of filter of the, the, the Leave vote and then the conversion of the Conservative Party into a version of the Brexit Party and voted Tory in December 2019. It takes, I don't know what it takes in order to budge some of those, the, those votes. But I mean, after all, every time Starmer kind of gets close to sort of laying a punch on them, they just pull out another kind of culture war card pretty quickly uh, and, and immediately the topic gets changed. So I, I think it's, they're, they're, they're in an extremely strong political position right now, but not for very commendable reasons. We don't have much time left, and I do want to squeeze a couple more questions uh, in. So briefly, if you will, although I'm not sure it's possible to answer this question briefly. Focusing on Britain, says this, uh, this questionnaire, what is the role of national, nationalist populism in Scotland and elsewhere in defining the future of the union? Matt? Well, I think it's a great question because it reminds us that actually political leadership makes a difference. And one of the interesting comparison points you know, that we have within the UK is that we have somewhat of a similar population in Scotland, but being led in a very, very different from uh, what we can see uh, in England. And I think the story of the story of the SNP and the rise of the SNP primarily is a story uh, around what we in political science would call le- leadership cues, that Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP are cueing the population in a way to reframe their national sentiment around a more progressive sort of socially liberal, you know, uh, modernist sort of uh, way of seeing, seeing the world, which is very different from the, the, um, the sort of Boris Johnson strategy. But it's not entirely clear where we go from here, because let's assume 2021, one of the big elections will be the Scottish Parliament elections. Let's assume the SNP, as the polls suggest, do incredibly well. And let's assume that, as the polls also suggest, that public support in Scotland for a second referendum remains very strong, well above 50%, and public support for independence remains strong. I'm not entirely sure how Nicola Sturgeon goes from big SNP one to getting that referendum, not only in a way that delivers what she wants to see, but also in a way that doesn't inflame Englishness. Um, because as we get to the next general election, I think probably what we're going to see is a rerun of 2015, which will be a Conservative Prime Minister saying to the English Essentially, if you do not want Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP in charge with Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, then you will have to rally around the Conservative Party. And guess what? 70% of leavers typically would say they rather associate with their English identity than their British uh, identity. And so in some senses, 10 years on, we'll be back to that Cameron, Linton Crosby playbook, which I suspect will be highly effective because it's proven to be effective before. I'll keep it brief. That's, that's... Uh, Will, do you want to answer that? I don't know how much I have to add on that. Yeah, and since we're out of time, I mean, I, I, I mean, I do think that this is absolutely, obviously, the one of the the huge questions that faces the UK over the, over the next few years. So it's a it's an important thing to talk about. But I'm, I'm not sure I have a huge amount to add to to, to this. Well, here's a, here's a good final question for you both. Are you optimistic about Britain in 2021 and beyond? Will, maybe you can be I, I believe the v- viewers have probably already drawn their own conclusions about my, my views about this. Uh, I, I, mean, I, I know I'm not very optimistic. I, I'm not someone who's, I mean, to be, to be clear, I mean, I, I, like, like Matt, I mean, I, I accept that we have to sort of kind of accept where we are. I mean, I'm not sort of uh, someone who, who, who sort of is just going to endlessly mourn the European Union and that sort of thing. But um, I think that, uh, and I also, I also agree that the, the, the sort of, you know, that our sort of sociological 
political and geographic consciousness has has risen substantially over the last five years in ways that potentially is healthy. But it has to be that has to be mediated in an honest fashion. And and I'm far more pessimistic than than Matt about how honest some of the conversations have been and will be about uh, what kind of country Britain is, uh, because we know, and I, I, I get bored of sort of, you know, this sort of oh, blame the media for everything, but we do know, and we're about to get, you know, GB News is about to be launched, backed by the Legatum Foundation and Paul Marshall again, and this sort of thing. So we're going to get more uh, sort of culture war style media uh, interventions. And I think that the ability of this country to have honest conversations with itself is not very good at the moment. If it could, then I'd be much more optimistic. And, and accepting as well. And I am accepting of, of, of where we are. Matt, are you optimistic? Yeah, I'll be the optimist in the room. I think, obviously, let's just put COVID and vaccine rollout aside. But uh, look, I mean, I, I came from a somewhat different place from many of my colleagues in that, you know, I, I, I did come from a family and a community that, you know, didn't really was on the wrong side of social and economic change for the last 30 years. And so I'm much more instinctively sympathetic to those who say that actually what we needed in this country was a broader reset. And if the Brexit rebellion, you know, which, again, I didn't support, but then later came to accept, is the way in which we get toward that reset button, then to be frank, I'm all for it. I think there is a lot going for the United Kingdom that we often forget and was amplified by the fact that we were one of the first countries to develop a vaccine to license it to roll it out that we do have one of the largest economies in the world that was just forecast by 2050 will still have one of the top 10 economies in the world we've got a large growing population that's highly skilled that is largely despite what we might fear is civic minded we are generally polite we are generally courteous and we do generally uh, respect one another we've just gone through the brexit wars with some absolute tragedies on the way that we shouldn't underplay on any level but we've not seen mass violence in the way that some had feared and some had talked about and i do think that overall as a country looking forward we do actually have a lot of things to be optimistic Mm. about the question that i want to leave hanging jenny is is whether many of the people who have now found themselves on the wrong side of political change much like the people who voted for brexit found themselves on the wrong side of social and economic change for the last 30, 40 years, whether they will find will be will find themselves willing to compromise and to contribute to the rebuilding and, and, and to that reset moment. And that sounds somewhat cliche, but Remainers in general, as we know, are also some of the most highly educated, connected and dynamic people in the country. So (laughs) I I would very much like us to get to a point where actually we all collectively think about how we can make global Britain a success. And that also, by the way, includes holding the government to account on issues like most people who voted for Brexit don't want a Singapore on tents. They don't want globalisation on steroids. They do want more redistribution and a fairer tax policy. But I'll leave it there. I I am. We are going to have to leave it there. It's good to end on on a note of optimism. And of course, we can carry on the conversation on Twitter uh, using the Intelligence Squared hashtag. Thank you so much, Matthew Goodwin, Will Davis, for this fascinating conversation that really could have run and run. I've really enjoyed it. And thanks to the audience for these wonderful questions. I'm going to hand back to Connor now from Intelligence Squared.